Let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, we thank you that you have taught us what you would have us believe and do. Help us by your Holy Spirit, for the sake of Jesus Christ, to hold fast your word in hearts that you have cleansed, that thereby we may be made strong in faith and perfect in holiness, and be comforted in life and death. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right, I have a, a bunch of things I want to talk about, So, and, and a few things I don't want to fail to get to. So let me, let me talk for a little bit about Ezekiel chapter 36, and then I'm going to ask you uh, whether you have any questions, anything we should talk about. But I, I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to talk about some things, some questions that I caught previously. So if you got a Bible, open up, open up to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. And um, so Ezekiel, we should someday do a study, a whole study on the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel was uh, with the people of Israel when they were exiled into Babylon. And uh, he, he writes um, some really sort of stunning prophecies, um, speaks, delivers some stunning prophecies of the prompting of God that uh, kind of set, set, send the people back on their heels, or they ought to have, because God's words are so vivid and so harsh. And at the same time, God's words are uh, so profoundly comforting. It's from Ezekiel that we first get this image of the Lord God being the shepherd of his people. In fact, we heard these lessons in church um, over the last several weeks. We heard um, from Ezekiel 34 that, that God says, I, I myself will seek out my sheep. Right, so he has sent to them shepherds, uh, kings, and priests, and they haven't listened to them, or they've, or they've been bad shepherds. And so God says, "I, I myself, will be their shepherd," which, of course, is what Jesus picks up on um, when he, when in John chapter ten, where he says, "I am the good shepherd." Um, and then we heard a few weeks ago, also uh, from Ezekiel thirty-seven, the story of the valley, the valley of the dry, of dry bones. A lot of what Ezekiel reported was things that he saw in visions. Um, and in this section of, of the book, in this section of comfort, there is a chapter 36, which um, has some, some, again, some stunning imagery that is especially helpful for us in the New Testament, we who are members of the Church of God in the New Testament. And I want to pick up looking at, um, start at verse 22. So this, the reason why we're looking at this section comes from a question about forgiveness and guilt. And um, you could frame the question this way. You can say, of course, we all know that uh, our sins are forgiven. This is the basic, um, the basic uh, premise of being a Christian, that God forgives your sins for Christ's sake because he died on the cross. But as Christians, we still live our lives ex with the experience of guilt, right? Those sins that we've committed, the sins that we continue to commit, they weigh on us. And uh, there's a question about what the purpose is. You know, why can't I be free of guilt. Why shouldn't I be free of guilt? What is the purpose? And, and Ezekiel gets to that. There's a lot of ground to cover before we get there, and it's some beautiful stuff. So I want to I dig in, um, starting at verse 22, Ezekiel chapter th 36, verse 22. Um, so I'm just going to read uh, maybe verse by verse or so, and I, I'm going to draw your attention to a few things along the way. Uh, this is what he says. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So God is setting up uh, this argument. He's setting up the rationale, the reason why he's about to act and what's surprising about it and and even seems a bit insulting as he says it's not because of you it's not because you're so special that i'm going to act it's not because you're good or wonderful it's none of those things um it is because of my holy name hang on one second i got a phone call coming in on my computer here gotta, there we go close that window so it doesn't happen again um okay so God says, God says, it's not because of you. It's not because you're pe perfect people. It's not because you're good people. Um, but it is because of my holy name, um, which is a, 
again, it seems like a bit of an insulting thing to say. It's like, um, you know, uh, you, if you say to your spouse, I love you, but not because you're anything wonderful, but because I promised to love you, you know, uh, when we got married. I made promises and that's why I'm going to love you. Um, but there, it, there's a problem there with the way we think about things because um, we want there to be something wonderful in us, some reason in us that another person or God himself loves us. And if that were the case, we would be completely hopeless. We have nothing in us that's worth loving, right? God looks at us in our, our sinful, fallen nature, and he says it's completely corrupt, right? It ought to be washed away like it was with Noah in the flood. The whole world had to be wiped clean, and so it is with our human nature. And so if God's going to save us, it's not going to be because of us, but it's going to be because of something in him. And what is it that's in him is his holy name and the promises that he makes um, using his name. So God swears to do things, and he doesn't have anybody higher than him that he can swear by. This is what Paul says, I think. I think it's Paul. There's nobody higher than him that he can swear by, so he swears by himself. And what that means is that he stakes his entire reputation on what he says he's going to do. And what he's said he's going to do is save you, forgive your sins. He's going to save the people of Israel. He staked his reputation on it. Um, and even more than his reputation, he stakes his very life on it. Um, there's this mysterious scene that comes up in Genesis when God is making his covenant with Abraham. And he tells Abraham to, um, to, to wait for him, to prepare a few things and to wait for him. And in the deep darkness of the night, Abraham has this vision of uh, animals cut, or they're, they're, he, he is, he's been called to sacrifice some animals. And there they are cut in two. And this, uh, this smoking fire pot passes between these animals. It's a really mysterious vision that he has. But there in that sacrifice, the sacrifice that Abraham made, God is making a pledge. He's saying to Abraham, um, I'm staking my name on my promises to you and my own life so that I could be become, I could become like those animals that have been sacrificed. If I don't keep my word, my name is mud. If I don't keep my word. And that's a remarkable thing that God would, um, would, would be willing to stake his reputation on doing something like saving us, saving creatures. It's completely outrageous. He has no reason to do it except uh, for the reasons that are in his, uh, his divine love, which we can never comprehend. I mean, there's nothing in us to commend us to him. And yet he's promised um, staking his entire, uh, his entire reputation on it. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, look, you wouldn't want me to save you because you're good, but I'm doing something better. I'm saving you because I said so. And that means that it's good not just for the people he saves, but for the whole world, because everybody gets to see. When God saves Israel, when God saves you and he saves me, the world gets to see that God has kept his promises. God has done what he said, that he's trustworthy and um, that we can rely on him. So that's the, that's the backdrop for his argument here. And this is what he says. This is what he's going to do. This is what he has promised to do. So here we are, verse 30 or verse 24. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. So the people of Israel had been scattered because of their sinfulness and the foreign armies came in and they were scattered. And God says, I'm going to gather you back. You're coming back. And for us, that's a picture of what sin does to us, right? It scatters us. Um, all we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way. And God has come and promised to gather us back. There's the language there. I want to, I want to call your attention to um, the language that we hear in the catechism, what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit, um, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with gifts, and his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the one true faith. In the same way, what does he do? He calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies. He calls and gathers. So this is the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, is gathering God's people from all of the nations that they've been scattered across and scattered to and drawing them into their own land. That is the promise, the beautiful promise um, of heaven. And for the people of Israel, it was this immediate promise of returning to, their, to the land that had been given to Abraham. Um, but in the distant future, it's promise of a country with God, a homeland uh, with God. So verse 25, Neil and uh, Marlene, we're looking at uh, Ezekiel chapter 36 here. Ezekiel chapter 36. And we're about to get to the good stuff. So you came at just the right time. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. Uh, listen to this and, and hear the echoes of, um, listen for echoes of things that we do in church. Okay. Or of one, one important thing that we do in church. This is what God says. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. 
and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I'll sprinkle clean water. I mean, you can't hear that in the church and not think of baptism, right? And what's remarkable about it is how specific he is. What is he cleaning them from? What is he cleansing them from? It's not just uh, smudges and stains. It's not just, you know, minor transgressions, a sin, a shortcoming here and there. What's he cleansing them from? He's cleansing them from all their uncleannesses and their idolatry, which is a beautiful picture of what God does to us in baptism. We tend to, we tend to think of baptism in, uh, we take it too lightly. But what has God done in baptism? He's washed you clean of your idolatry. He's taken all of the false gods that you loved and drowned them in the, in the grave. He buried them in the grave and drowned them so that, they can't, so that you can't love them anymore. Uh, this is what he's done. He's taken your idols and smashed them. And that is, when you think about it, the very first most important thing that we need. That's why baptism is such a profound gift for us. Because before anything else good can happen to us, we need to have God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as our God. The one uh, whom we look to and trust for all good things. And this is what he does. I sprinkle you clean with water, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Then he goes on. Verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, which is uh, just the perfect image for what happens uh, for Christians in baptism. And then also an image of how Christians ought to live their lives. So when I, I was talking about this with the confirmation students just earlier today, imagine that you, um, you got a bad heart. Um, and so w- with a bad heart, like physically a bad heart, um, you suffer, right? You are weak. You can't catch your breath. Going up and down stairs is difficult. You struggle. And there's always the risk that, you know, the next time it beats or, or five times from now or a hundred times from now, it's going to be the last time it beats, right? If you've got a bad heart, you're not in good shape. And you're, you know, just you're, the, the clock is ticking, essentially, right? Um, what happens uh, when, if you get a heart transplant? What happens if you get a heart transplant? Well, um, a couple of things need to happen. Um, you need to have your chest ripped open, essentially, right? Your chest ripped open and your old heart plucked from your body, right? This is not, this is not trivial surgery. This is not something simple. This is dramatic and, uh, and violent even. And then you need a new heart. But where does that new heart come from? It doesn't just grow on a tree, right? Um, somebody else had to die for you to have a new heart. And that's, that's going a bit further than what Ezekiel is saying here. But that is such a helpful image for us in the church, right? In order for us to have a new heart, what had to happen? Someone had to die. Now, for the life of a Christian, um, this, in, this changes how you think about things entirely, right? Um, if you've got... If you were on your way to your deathbed with your bad heart and somebody died and gave you a new heart, how are you going to live? Well, you're going to start by being incredibly grateful to the one who sacrificed to give you a new heart. You're going to be very grateful for that heart that you have. And anything that any of the bad habits that you had before that led to, you know, your bad heart, right? Eating, eating improperly, uh, not exercising not getting enough sleep, doing all, all kinds of things that damage your heart. You won't do them anymore because now you've got, a, you've got a brand new heart, right? You've got a fresh start. You've got an opportunity to take care of that heart. And that's what the life of a Christian looks like, is taking care of that new heart. And that's, so this is what I was explaining to the confirmation kids. Is this, well, this is why we do all the things we do, why we go to church, why we study God's word, why we memorize the catechism, why we pray, why we eat and drink Jesus' body and blood. What are we doing? We are uh, exercising our hearts and feeding them with what they need in order to stay strong and healthy, the new hearts that God has given us. Um, that is incredibly motivating because you think about like what the difference is between, again, living with a physically bad heart and living with a physically good heart. What's the difference? Well, um, life with a bad heart is miserable, right? You can't, you can't do the things you want to do. You're, not, you're no longer the person you want to be because you're suffering on account of your heart. What's it like then to have a new heart? Well, it's incredible. You can run and jump and skip and play and do all kinds of things. You can take a full deep breath and enjoy the, the outdoors. You can do everything and you should. That's what the heart is for. And it's this very same thing with the heart that God has given you. So your old stony heart, as Ezekiel puts it, couldn't love the good things that God has given to us in this world. It couldn't love your neighbors. It couldn't love him. Now you've got a new heart. Well, what are you going to use it for? Well, you don't use it to just sit and slouch on your couch and um, and uh, be unhealthy any longer. You use it to do all of the good things that God has given you to do, to love your neighbors, to love him, to glorify his name, 
Um, and that is such a wonderful life. So that the life of a Christian, the, the purpose of being baptized is not just to get out of hell or to avoid going to hell at the end of your life, but it is in order for you to live the life of a new person right now with a new heart that can love and do all kinds of wonderful things. And look, it's not just your heart, but you've got a new spirit, right? You've got, you've got a new breath. You've got the spirit of God. And when you have the spirit of God, I mean, you have uh, divine energy, right? <laughs> Think about what a wonderful thing it is to have energy. Well, you've got divine energy. You've got God's, uh, God's spirit, which is good for all of the wonderful things that God has in store for us in this life. The life that he's meant for us to live, of loving, of loving our neighbors and uh, serving him. So God has promised to do this. And just as he's promised to do it for the people of Israel as they're in exile, in captivity, um, in the very same way, you know, talking about sprinkling them clean with water, that's exactly what he does to us in baptism. Keep going, verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So there's God's law. What's God's law like for us as Christians with new hearts? Well, it's what we love. It's what we love to do. Our new hearts love what God loves. And so we are careful to follow his laws, follow his statutes and obey his rules. Um, and what a joyous thing that is. What, you know, the law becomes for us something wonderful and marvelous instead of something dreadful and terrible because um, we understand, we've learned that it's what's good. Um, if you picture, you know, here's, if you picture the realm of God's law, here, let me draw a picture for you since I can do that on my phone. If you, we got somebody who called in. Who's that on the phone there? One, uh, we got two nine one one seven four zero. Who's that? That's me, Les. Hey, Les. I'm gonna I'm gonna write your name so everybody can see who it is when you talk. <laughs> and Barb is here too. Hi, Les and Barb. Okay, so you won't be able to hear see the picture, but I'm gonna describe it to you, so you'll be able to picture it in your minds. So, um, picture. God's law here. And if you're out here, outside of God's law, and you know that you should be here inside of God's law, um, but you'd rather be out here doing all kinds of things that are unlawful, um, God's law is a terrible thing, right? It just is a constant reminder that you're not who you should be, and that's awful. And it's a reminder that you're on your way to hell because you've broken God's law. But once you are a Christian, once you're baptized, here you are, um, Inside this circle, you're now in Christ, and Christ is the perfect fulfillment of the law. Jesus kept the law perfectly. So now what's the law for you? Well, it's all of these things that you see that you should love, all of the things that you see that you should do. I mean, think about the Ten Commandments. How lovely it is to realize that honoring your father and mother is a gift from God, because God has attached promises to it, and that they're, they're his representatives to care for you and provide every good thing for you. How lovely it is to realize that uh, not only is it bad to hurt your neighbor, but that by helping your neighbor, you glorify God and you serve him and you do good in the world. You um, you can benefit him. How, how wonderful it is to see that by loving your spouse and devoting yourself to them, uh, just as God has devoted himself, Christ has devoted himself to the church, you are presenting uh, an image of God's love into the world so that everybody can see and enjoy uh, the benefits of God's love. All of a sudden, the law becomes this glorious, beautiful thing because you've got a new heart and a new spirit. You've been washed clean. The idols are gone. The idols are all out here. You know, this is the realm of the idols outside of God's law, outside of that circle. And you used to love them, and that's why you hated the law. But now that those idols are dead, you see that the law is what's so good. It's what it's what God uh, has given for your good. It's what Christ has fulfilled for your good, and it's what he wants your life to look like. Now, we make a start at that in this life, and we're going to stumble and fall and fail and, and be imperfect. And that's where we talk about guilt in just a moment. Um, but uh, along the way, we're essentially, we're practicing. We're practicing for what life is going to be like in heaven, where we don't need the law anymore because we are conformed perfectly to the image of Christ, where we, we, we now long, no longer look like sinful human beings, but we look like Jesus. And we love all of the things we should love. So uh, you can see the connection here between your idols being gone cleansed from your uncleanness and your idols. You've got a new heart, a new spirit. It's a heart that's fleshy, that loves what God loves. And so you walk in his law. And it's this whole picture of the life of a Christian. It's a life of complete change. You're, you, you were going one direction and now you're going the other direction. You were living in the land of idols, in the land of death, and now you're in God's land, in a land of life, okay? 
Um, and this is what he's talking about here. Verse 28, I will do, you will dwell. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. That's the first commandment right there. Um, I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Okay, so this is a beautiful picture of a bountiful harvest, food in abundance, right? Provision, God's going to take care of your every need in this land. It is a beautiful picture that God has just painted of what he's going to do for his people. It's just an incredible picture. And this is, um, this is where the question of guilt comes in. So when I, whenever I read this, whenever I'm reading it to a class or a group of people are talking about it with somebody, I'm always very tempted to stop right there and just let the picture be so beautiful, okay? But, but Ezekiel goes on. God goes on. This is what he says in verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Isn't that a startling thing, right? So he said, here, you're going to be in this wonderful land, rich bounty, your idols are gone, you're going to have new hearts, a new spirit, and then you're going to remember all of the terrible things you did. That doesn't sound very good at all, does it? It sounds like torture. <laughs> it sounds dreadful. I'd rather just forget them, right? I'd rather just have them be gone. So why does God do that? Why does he let us remember? Why does he remind us of the things that we've done? Why does he um, carry us on in this life in the midst of grief? Why do we still feel like we're weighed down under his hand, that his wrath is heavy upon us? Um, there's, there's, there are two important things to consider here, two important reasons. One is because it serves as a deterrent. Okay? If you forget the things you've done, you're bound to do them again. Right? Um, this is why we learn history, right? So that we don't repeat it. Those who don't, how does the saying go? Those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it, right? So you remember the things that you've done, uh, how you've broken God's law, so that you don't do it again. You learn from, you learn from your mistakes, essentially. Um, and in this case, it's much more grievous than a mistake. You learn from uh, the, the deadly peril that you were in because of your sins, right? If you remember that, if you remember what that feeling was like, when you discovered that, when you looked down all of a sudden, you realized that you were just teeter, teetering over the edge of a cliff, right? Um, because you had sinned and disobeyed and you'd strayed away from God. And there you are just teetering over the edge of a cliff and he pulls you back. If you remember that, you're not going to wander near the edge of that cliff again, or at least you'll have uh, more reason to avoid. It, okay, so that's, that's one reason why we, we suffer from guilt yet in this life. But there's another reason that this is related to how God uses his law. So, so uh, God uses his law in a number of ways. One of them is just, like I, like I said, is a deterrent. So he says, if you do things that are bad, you're going you're gonna to get punished for them. But there's another important way that he uses it, which is to reveal our sin, um, the depths of our sin, so that we understand the depth of his mercy and cling to it and flee to it. So not only uh, do you run the risk of straying near the edge again, straying near the edge of the cliff if you don't remember your sins, if you don't remember your guilt. You also, more importantly, run the risk of forgetting just how much God has done for you, how lavish his mercy is, and how it is your only hope. So uh, there is the, the most important thing for a Christian your whole life long is never to forget that God's mercy is your only hope. We are, we are always by nature um, having this thought creep in, this inclination in our heart that maybe we can make it just a little bit of the way on our own. Maybe we have just a little bit of hope in ourselves. Maybe we've gotten better enough. <laughs> maybe I'm doing well enough now, you know, as I've grown in wisdom and maturity, maybe I'm doing well enough now that I actually don't need all of Jesus anymore. Maybe I can get by without him. Or maybe um, I get some credit for all of the good that I've managed to accomplish by now, right? And, but that's, that's exactly the opposite. When you get to the end of your life, you don't want to be looking at yourself one bit. You want to be looking only at Jesus and his mercy and the cross on which he died and the blood that he poured out for your sins. That is the only, the only thing that you want. There's the great hymn, salvation unto us has come. Salvation unto us has come. And there's this great line, your grace alone, dear Lord, I plead. Your grace alone. Okay, so there you are in the courtroom. And the judge asks you to make a plea and you say, guilty. My only hope is that you're a merciful judge. 
Um, and it's not just a fleeting hope for you Christians, because you've seen uh, the blood of Christ. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Um, and so uh, that is why your guilt persists in this life. It's for your good. It's, it's discipline. It's the chastening of your, of your heavenly father who doesn't want you to forget uh, that you need him and that you'll need him to your life's end. Um, and one of the, again, one of the startling things about the life of a Christian is that we grow in maturity and in holiness and in sanctification. But at the same time, we also grow in our knowledge of how depraved we are, how sinful and wicked we are, the depths of our sin. I mean, it is a, a, a dreadful thing to plumb those depths and you, and, and you realize uh, just how much help you need. Um, and that is such a good thing to realize. So I just talked for about 26 minutes and nobody interrupted me because you're all on mute. But uh, let me see if you have any questions or comments there. Yes. Grandfather. No, it was your mom. Oh, Sorry. my mom's hand. Okay. So when you go to confession, you know, if you do corporate confession in church or private confession, when you're confessing the sins, you're not, the intention is not that the guilt be taken away, but sin forgiven, separate things. Yeah, right. I mean, so so there's two there's you have you have two experiences there. So guilt is real. Guilt is not something that you um, whether or not you feel it, guilt is there. Okay. So um, you you are you are meant to feel relief from the weight of your guilt. And but it's not just it's not just that it's gone, but it's been supplanted by God's mercy, right? But but what doesn't go away is your knowledge of the sin. It's still there. You know, you knew that sin was, you still know that sin was there, right? But you also know even more that Christ has paid the penalty for that sin. And that's that's why your knowledge of the sin is there. You don't forget it. You don't forget it. But you but you know that it's been washed away, that it's been taken away. Does that make sense? It does. But then when we talk in terms of God he forgets our sins. I mean, at, at the last day, he doesn't remember them because we're covered. Yeah, when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that's all that matters, right? And then again, this is, this is one of the, the amazing things or difficult things about the life of a Christian is that you are to look at yourself, not how you see yourself or how anybody else might see you, but you're to look at yourself how God sees you. That's the, that's the exercise of faith. To say, I am a poor, miserable sinner. Well, how does God see me? He sees me in Christ. He sees me as perfect and holy and having fulfilled the law and kept the law. Not because I have, right? And I remember it. I know that I haven't. That's what makes it even more amazing, right? Because it's been credited to me. It's been given to me as a gift. Um, and so, in fact, having those two things side by side is important in a Christian's life. What is um, to be avoided, and this is why we have confession and absolution, what's to be avoided is that you have your guilt and your sin, and you begin to think that, well, you've got to do something to make up for it, right? I got to do something to get rid of this. I have to get rid of this on my own, right? No, you can't. It's going to be there. You, got to, you have to hear the word of forgiveness in, 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 to absolve it, to take it away. Um, you can't. I mean, you know, the, all, all the range of things that people do to try to get rid of guilt, right? From just forgetting about it, to justifying it, to um, uh, finding all kinds of other people to share in their guilt, right? All kinds of other people who, who are guilty of the same thing, to um, abusing substances, to uh, committing greater crimes because you feel like you need to be punished for what you've done, right? All of these things that we do to try and take away our guilt, the only thing that deals with guilt is absolution christ's atonement on the cross um and you know when in in that in those words you experience you you can feel the relief of that burden because it's real it's not it's not just make-believe right it's not like just forgetting it but it is in fact a transfer of your guilt it's gone it's on somebody else now yeah could i ask a yeah, question yeah. um okay so we are Christ taking our sin away by dying on the cross. Okay. So then when we go uh, in the last day for judgment, um, are those things judged 
again, or is that already taken away so that we aren't going to be judged for that again? Or how does that work? Yeah, good, good. The way that Jesus talks about the last day, it is a judgment according to your deeds. Okay? So uh, everything that you've done is going to be laid before God, good and bad. Which is why um, the last day is going to be terrible for a lot of people. And it would be terrible for you and me, except that when all our deeds are laid before God, we're going to say what? This is no surprise to you or me. <laughs> we knew this. We admitted it our whole lives long. We knew it. And it, I wasn't planning on trying to cover this up on my own. I have Christ's blood to cover it up, right? So you say to God, again, you've got God's name and his promises. And you say to God, um, your grace alone, dear Lord, I plead. I've got Christ's blood covering me. Um, you can see my blood, or you can see Christ's blood. Even though I have all of these sins before me, they've been atoned for by Christ. And so Christ, um, Christ's righteousness uh, satisfies God's wrath. As long as you, uh, long as you uh, repent and ask for forgiveness and truly sorry for your sins, then that'll be kind of as what you said then. I mean... But a person would have to repent and be very sorry for him and not continue to do the same sins over and over again. Yeah, those things, those things work together. And they, and it can be a little bit, um, we have to talk about it in a, um, it can be tricky to talk about because we start to um, want, we kind of want to game the system. And we, we end up asking questions like, well, do I feel sorry enough for my sins? Or, um, have I stopped doing all of the sins that I did before? I sure don't think I have. You know, I, I, I continue to sin. I daily sin much, uh, Luther says in the, in the small catechism. Um, and so the life of a Christian is a life of continual repentance, always repenting. So a Christian responds to his guilt in a different way than a non-Christian does. Both are guilty. The Christian and non-Christian are both guilty. But a Christian... Uh, knows that when he is confronted with his sin, uh, acknowledging it and laying it before God is the only cure. You cannot atone for it on your own, and you cannot cover it up on your own. And so repentance for a Christian goes on day by day because, again, yeah, we daily sin much. Now, of course, a Christian who loves God's, God's will and is grateful for the new heart that he's been given, well, he's going to try. <laughs> he's going to try to do better. In fact, we asked this question in... Um, private confession and absolution. Um, the, the person who's confessing says, um, after, they've list, after they've confessed their sins, they say, I am sorry for all of this, and I ask for grace. I want to do better, okay? That's what a, Christ, that's what a Christian says, I want to do better. Now, um, it's a struggle to do better, and that's the struggle that a Christian engages in, right? Um, the question is, are you struggling against your sinful flesh or are you struggling against Christ? So those are the options. And, um, uh, you know, well, that, does that, does it help answer your question, Neil? Yeah, it does. Okay. Okay. We had somebody just phone in here. Uh, who's that with uh, the number two, seven, four, eight, nine, five, three. That's Marlon. Hey, Marlon. Oh, I wasn't saying that. I was listening. Ah, good. You keep, you keep on listening then. <laughs> uh, any other questions here? I think one of the things that you see, and, and you, you, both your question, Ma, and, and Neil, your question, they hit the nail on the head um, with this real challenge that we experience as Christians. And that is our lives are unsettled in this world. We don't ever get to hang up our hats in this life and say, okay, I've mastered it. I'm the perfect Christian now. I've graduated from this class, right? That's not what happens. Your, your life as a Christian is, is daily, re daily recognizing that you need to repent and that you need Christ's forgiveness and that his mercy is all that you uh, is the only thing that can save you and that you need it, that you discover each day that you needed it more than you thought you needed it yesterday, right? Um, that's the life of a Christian. And that's, that's, I mean, that's terribly unsettling because, I, I mean, just think about how nice it is to graduate from something, <laughs> to pass, you know, to, to, 
turn in your last exam and say, hey, I'm done with this. I, I'm, and, and this is the danger with confirmation. You know, I, I think about this a lot about, um, you know, when we, when we design things in a way that, um, and this is the way it's been for a long time. And, you know, in, in the Lutheran church, we design things in a way where you feel like you've graduated, right? You feel like you've learned everything you need to know, and then you're done. You, you know, you, you can sign off on the course and you say, hey, I'm a Christian now. Well, um, it's like Paul says, let he who stands take heed but he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Um, so, uh, you know, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Never in your own, never in your own uh, Christianity, in your own faith. Boast in Christ. Okay. Making sense? Yes. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, here's Charlie. Hey, Charlie. Uh, it says that to enter the kingdom of God as a small child, right? Yeah. You know, to me, it's hard to understand what they mean. Granted, you're, you know, you're naive in a way to what yeah. you're yeah, naive is a good word for it. Um, simple, in simplicity, right? Um, uh, like a little child. So think about how a child trusts his mother, right? Um, a, a, a little child expects only good things from his mom, and it takes a long time for him to learn that his mom is not perfect, right? That, that, you learn that over time, that, that parents aren't perfect, but it, you start out just tr trusting them <laughs> for everything. And you know whether you could articulate it as a little baby or not. You couldn't, of course. You know that if mom's not there, you're in trouble, right? Not, nothing's going to work for you if mom's not there. And that's what that, that simple, um, that simplicity of faith, that single-mindedness, right? There's, there's only one person that a baby wants, only one person. And that's, this is just what um, Jesus is talking about. Unless you uh, receive the, the kingdom of God like a little child, as a little child, you shall by no means enter it. I'm just looking up that passage here um, so I can see the context here. Um, let's see. what It's in Mark. I don't know if I can. Unless you enter. Let me just see if I can find that real quick. Um, I'll search for it. Oh, okay. Mark chapter 10. Let the children come to me. They were bringing children, and Jesus was upset that the uh, disciples were trying to stop them. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Um, and what, he, what he's after here is you know, the disciples who regularly continually think that they they understand the kingdom of god they think that they've got jesus figured out that they've got him in a box um and that's that continues all the way you know you go into the garden of gethsemane when jesus is being arrested and what does peter do he cuts off somebody's ear he pulls out his sword and cuts off somebody's ear because he thinks that the kingdom of, of god is going to take things by force but um he has he's missed the point entirely he's being too clever he's being too smart um and jesus it's like uh when moses brings the people of Israel to the edge of the Red Sea and they're losing their minds because Pharaoh and his army are coming after them. He says, knock it off. <laughs> he says, I, God is going to save you. All that you have to do is be silent. Right? And that's, you know, that's the, that's the simplicity that uh, God's after there. Does that make sense, Charlie? It does. Good. That's a good question. Yeah. And, and, and um, I mean, children are not very self-reflective usually that's a fault right I, you want your kids to you say would you just think a little bit more about your how you're behaving <laughs> you know, have a little bit more self-awareness but what's what's uh on the flip side of that is that they are paying attention to other things right they're not looking at themselves and that's what we tend to do as adults too much we tend to spend too much time looking at ourselves and not as much not enough time looking at at jesus yeah, questions kind of off the wall too go for it when Jesus died, he's gone and dead. 
Will he be too? Say that. Well, I missed that last part. Right. Jesus, right? A guy told me one time, Jesus fulfilled his duty and dying on the cross. Will he still be in Oh, boy, that last word. I think just got broke up again. Will he still be in heaven with you know, as a triune God? You know. Yes, yes, that's a great question. Okay, and this is really important. So um, here's how you think about Jesus. Um, God has always been, from the beginning, from for yet yeah, forever, and he's always been Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons. We hear about that already back in Genesis. Um, not by name, but we know that they're there, Father, Son, and Spirit. So the Son has always been. Now, when um, Jesus became man, when the Son took on human flesh and was born as the baby Jesus, something changed, something new happened, something unheard of and unbelievable, that God should take on human flesh, that God would submit himself to that humiliation of being taking the form of a servant, right? And then that he would go so far as to humble himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death and death on a cross at that, right? So, um, so now we've got in Jesus, God, the son, the second person of the Trinity in human flesh dying. Um, and it's completely outrageous. Okay. So then he rises from the dead and the disciples see him and they put their fingers in his side and, and their fingers in his hands. And he's still got flesh and blood. He's the same Jesus that he was before, now glorified. He's, he's put off his humiliation. He's no longer refraining from using his divine attributes. Um, but look what he's still got. He still has his flesh, still has his flesh and blood. Um, and so when, he, when they see him ascend into heaven, it's not like he sort of dissipates into smoke, but he bodily goes to heaven just like we bodily will go to heaven. That's why when we celebrate the ascension in just a couple of weeks, I think that's maybe a week and a half, or maybe maybe even just a week away. No, two weeks away now. Um, when we celebrate the ascension, uh, we are celebrating the fact that humanity has access to heaven because Jesus has gone there ahead of us in his flesh and blood. He's gone there to prepare a room, prepare a mansion with many rooms for us. Um, so, so Jesus is in heaven, flesh and blood, and we'll see him face to face even as we see each other face to face. And that's really important because, I mean, like the whole story is not that we put off our skin and bones and our flesh and blood, but that we humans with flesh and blood uh, have, get, to, get to be in the company of God, in communion with God, because that's what Jesus has, has done in becoming, in becoming human. Thank you. Yeah, good question. What else? Anything else? There was a hand raised up there. Yeah. Okay. Guess who? <laughs> this this is I, I'm, this is going to be kind of an interruption of what you've been talking about, but it's on my mind. Yeah. Tomorrow is the celebration of the death of C. W. Walter, and without whose effort and work and dedication, we might not be here today. I don't, do you have any word or two to say about him? Oh boy. <laughs> um, I will say that, uh, so CFW Walther um, came over with the Saxon immigrants in the 18, in mid 1800s. They were uh, looking for religious freedom in America and they settled in Missouri and they were the roots of the Missouri Synod. Um, there were lots of Lutherans and um, those those years, the next, you know, 100 years, and even to this day, um, sorting out the different kinds of Lutherans has been a real challenge. But one of the things that, that Walther did that is so formative for us in the Missouri Synod is that he drew a very clear straight line through the Lutheran confessions to the scriptures. So the Lutheran confessions are the documents that were written in the 1500s, starting with the Augsburg Confession, uh, starting with the, the, the creeds and then the, then the catechisms and the Augsburg Confession, where the Lutherans said to the Pope, to the emperor, they said, this is what we believe. We believe the same thing the church has always believed. And that's why we're teaching something different from the Catholic Church right now, because the Catholic Church has changed, he said. Uh, they said. So it contains all those documents where they said, this is what we believe. This is the Christian faith. And most importantly, those Lutherans in the 1500s said, 
we aren't teaching anything different from what scripture teaches. And if ever anybody teaches something different from scripture, let them be accursed, they said. And so CFW Walther uh, took this really strong confessional stance where he said, um, ha has something changed? <laughs> have, have the facts changed? Has the scriptures changed? Of course not. And if, if of course not, then the things that were said in the Bible and the things that were said in the 1500s when the confession, the good confession was made, those things hold true now as well. And that he said that in the mid 1800s. And we say that to this day. I mean, this is the thing that makes the Lutheran church, the, the, the true, genuine, confessional Lutheran church different from every other uh, denomination and every other religion is that we stake our entire claim on holding to the words of scripture um, without any human teachings mixed in. And we, are, we, are, we open ourselves to the criticism that if ever you find us saying something other than what scripture says, quit listening to me. Paul talks this way. He says in Galatians, the Galatians have gone, kind of gone off the rails and he's really harsh with them. He says, who bewitched you? He says, who bewitched you? Who took, who took control of your spirits? It's like you started listening to somebody uh, who was just put you in a trance. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So they believe uh, some human teachings. They believe the teachings of some men and not the teachings of God. And so they've gone to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But this is what Paul says. And this is what CFW Walter says. And this is what Christians say. Uh, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So, if, so I, and I say this to you too. If ever I say something different from the gospel that you've heard from Christ, uh, from, from the, the small catechism, from the teachings of this church uh, throughout history, if, you, if I ever say something different than that, I don't care if I'm the, the, you know, speaking the most clever, if I'm speaking in profound, wonderful, persuasive language, doesn't matter. You, you throw me out. And this is what Paul says, even if it's an angel of heaven, even if an angel from heaven appears with, you know, uh, radiant wings and a, and a flaming sword. And he says something different than Jesus died for your sins. Uh, and you are, uh, you are saved on account of that grace. Um, don't listen to him, throw him out. And that's what CS, CFW Walter is especially good for. He's good for lots of other things too, but that's, that's the legacy that's most valuable in our church today. And we ought to, we ought to hold that dearly. If you, if you ever get a chance to, um, uh, take a look at, his most famous book, Law and Gospel, on the proper distinction between law and gospel. There you see, uh, spoken so clearly, written so clearly. They were lectures that he gave to seminary students. You see so clearly just what we've been talking about today, about, about the relationship between sin and guilt and forgiveness and how the life of a Christian is a life of living in the tension between uh, law and gospel, between being a sinner and being a saint. There you go. Okay. <laughs> what else? Anything else? I want to. Oh yeah, go ahead, Vicky. I just was thinking about my grandkids as uh, and some of their the um, cartoons that are out there, and I find it interesting that even those people that are considered that they consider themselves atheists as they create these cartoons, they still have the good and the evil kind of spirits. And so it's just like, if they don't believe in that, there is such a thing, um, I, you know, I guess, is that something like innate, I, you know, yeah. that you know, good and evil. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. And I, you, your observation is spot on. Okay. So Paul, Paul tells us about this in Romans, um, uh, let's see, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Uh, it, so they are without excuse. Okay, so people, people who claim that there is no God, for one thing, they're fools, right? The psalmist says it. The fool says in his heart there is no God. But even, and so, I mean, um, it doesn't take long either in talking with somebody who claims that there's no God to find out that 
they believe in some substitute for God, right? Something that is just basically a God crafted after their own image. And the, the basic question that I think really gets most to the point is the one that you just, you just said, Vicki, which is um, how can anybody know what's good or bad? You don't have somebody, some authority telling you what's good and bad. And we actually have a lot of it written in our hearts. Even as corrupted as they are, we know, we know these basic things like you shouldn't kill, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't lie, right? Even though we do them, we know that they're bad, right? Um, and that's built into us. And the question of, you know, where that comes from, well, you have to do some real gymnastics to explain where that comes from if we are all just, a, you know, a combination of chemicals and cells and um, firings of neurons. It's just, you can't get there. It doesn't make sense. And like you said, Vicki, um, the way that people answer the question, what's good or bad, or what do you value? What's important? What's meaningful? The way they answer that question reveals who their God is or what their God is. And um, then it's just a question of whether it's the true God or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's why you have to watch out. Um, I mean, cartoons uh, and any kind of, any media that we consume. So this is not just for kids who um, maybe consume things a little bit less critically, but I think grownups do it too, you know? Any media that you consume, any information that you consume has in its background some, uh, a worldview. That's the sort of the best way to put it. That maybe you've heard that term before, a worldview. An understanding of where everything comes from and what is good or bad. This is something about um, that we should you should take seriously when you think about education. Like what what's the what's the point of um, education? What's the point of going to school when you're a kid? Um, and it's very easy for education to become something about um, uh, getting. I remember when I was when I was growing up, it was kind of just like assumed. I, I don't know where it came from. I think it was just in the in the environment that. Um, you know, that a person lives in, um, that I should go to school and go to college and I could get a job that paid really, really well if I studied hard and got good grades. You know, these things that just, the world teaches you these things. And what's implicit there is that that's the goal, is to get a good job that pays lots of money so you can have the things you want, right? And on at face value, that doesn't seem so bad. That seems like a really good way to um, make responsible citizens. But if that's the most important thing, that's really, uh, it's dangerous and backwards, right? Because that's not, that's not the most important thing. Clearly, it's not the most important thing. That's, uh, that's living selfishly, selfishly. That's living uh, for material things that are going to go away. And so, um, but that, that reveals, you know, wh uh, what the God is that's behind that kind of a mentality, the, the mentality that sort of governs our world today. I mean, so much of the world we live in is driven by by money, simply by accumulating wealth and keeping it and protecting it and holding on to it. I mean, it's just like if you if you if you start to think um, about uh, why people do the things they do and why organizations and corporations and businesses and institutions why they behave they do the way they do. It's often, you know, just about about money. And that again, this gets back to like what's good and evil, right? Um, so okay, there you go. What else? I don't know. So back kind of to when we were talking about, um, you know, God forgives us our sins or when we die and go to heaven. I mean, but when a person continue, continues sinning knowingly that they're going to continue to sin because they feel that God's already going to forgive them, how do you say to someone... You, you can continue to sin and knowing God, you'll be forgiven. But how can you try to help a person correct that, that for not continually sinning? Yeah. Yeah. I, that's a really good question. And it's one that um, there's no turnkey solution. There's no silver bullet for that. That's a very common thing to hear though. Right. Paul, I mean, Paul heard this back in his day. He says twice, he says, what, what then? Uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he and he says, by no means, absolutely not. For how can we who have died to sin continue to live in it, right? And so there's the, he gives us a helpful hint there about how to think about it. Um, uh, if you understand 
what had to happen in order to rescue you from sin. You won't want to go back to it. Okay. And there's a couple of helpful stories. It's like the people of Israel being pulled out of slavery in Egypt. So now they're across the Red Sea and they're headed towards the promised land and they're in the wilderness. And they do the very same thing that you just described. They say, uh, they start to get thirsty and they say, ah, I wish we were back in Egypt. We had food there. It was great there. It was wonderful, right? That's what, the, that's what it's like if you're a, a sinner who's been forgiven and you say, well, you know, I don't mind, um, I don't mind those sins. And if, if you know, I can, I can have God as my God and be forgiven in spite of them, then I might as well enjoy them. Well, that's, that misses the whole point. It's like you were, you were pulled out of slavery not to live as a slave anymore. And if you go back, you're not free. You're a slave again. Um, and the, and the, the image of a new heart is, the, is similar. It's like you've been given a new heart. And uh, what does it say about you as a person if you take that new heart and you just, you know, you gorge yourself on junk food and you, you smoke two packs a day and you um, never get up off the couch? What does it say about how you, what kind of a person you are? Well, you clearly don't understand. You clearly don't appreciate what happened in order to give you that new heart. Um, which tells me that maybe that heart's not actually in there at all, right? Maybe, maybe it's not, maybe you're just a hypocrite, right? And that in fact is, um, is the diagnosis there. Somebody who says, yeah, I'm a Christian. And then they continue to sin is a hypocrite. It's plain and simple. They're play acting. They're play acting. Um, James talks this way. Um, he says, uh, he talks about, um, talks a lot about the way we use our tongues. He's concerned about the eighth commandment quite a bit. He says, if anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. So th those two things go hand in hand. So you continue in sin and you're lying to yourself. He says that that person's religion is worthless, right? It's in vain. And that's, that's basically what you say. You say, okay, uh, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't um, force you to believe this, but I'm just going to tell you that if that's you, if that's the way you're thinking about it, then you're not a Christian, because the Christians don't think that way about it. Um, and that's, I mean, that's that's uh, hard, um, but it's true. So. Yes, sir. Reading some of Luther's writings, and he really took that question on head first, and. Uh, I might as well keep on sinning because I'm going to be forgiven anyway. And he had something very profound to say about it, but I don't remember what it was. Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is a, it's a perennial question. It comes up time and again, and it tells you something about human nature, right? We would love to have our cake and eat it too, wouldn't we? That's exactly what this is about, you know? And um, that's not the way God operates. That's just, and it doesn't make, and it just doesn't make sense either. You think about it like, um, if you give somebody a gift and they throw it out the window, are you going to give them another gift? It's just like, you know, that, that's how you're going to treat the gift. You don't throw pearls before swine. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, this is this, this is the stuff, the sort of the, the, where the rubber meets the road a lot of times in, in the church um, and why we take sin seriously. Why sin is uh, a serious matter? Because if you don't take sin seriously in the church, very quickly, um, that sinful tendency to want to have your cake and eat it too, that uh, becomes normal. That just becomes the the normal life. And and um, again, Paul has some harsh words about that um, for the Corinthians. He says, "You you think that you think that you're living like Christians, but you're just you're acting like." children <laughs> you're acting like toddlers you know um you're you're uh you're in in league with the devil essentially so these are some good questions i gotta say let me um let's see it's 802 i probably should call it quits i wanted to tell you a little bit about james let me just tell you one thing no well i'll try i'll try to keep it short just because this is coming up for this weekend, and uh, we're gonna read from James chapter one this weekend. And I just I'm not I I can't do it in my sermon, and so I want to just show you something interesting that James does. Um, in James chapter one, he is uh, talking about steadfastness. 
Okay, so he, he wants the Christians that he's writing to to be steadfast in the faith. And he uses some really cool, some really cool imagery. So this is what he says. He says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, so faith, you've got faith and he wants it to be steadfast. You're going to encounter trials, but if you endure, if you persist, um, it increases your faith. It's, for, it's testing your faith and honing it and making it sharp, and that's a good thing. If any of you lacks wisdom, he goes on, verse 5, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. There are things that you can ask of God um, and be confident, 100% confident that he will give you exactly what you've asked for, right? There's lots of things that you can ask him for, and you don't know whether he's going to give them to you. A million dollars, you know a brand new Porsche. I don't know if he's going to give me those things. I can pray for them anyways. It doesn't matter. But if I pray for faith, or if I pray for wisdom, if I pray for endurance, he's going to give them to me because he's promised. I mean, isn't that incredible? Ask and you will receive. There it is. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Okay, so now we've got this image. What's steadfast is something that's grounded, rock solid. Okay, that's what you want to be. But the one who doubts, the one who asks God, not sure if he's going to give you wisdom or faith, the one who doubts is like somebody, you know, being in a tiny little dinghy in the middle of the ocean. And the waves, what do they do? They just have their way with you. They toss you to and fro. You're not steadfast. You don't have steadfastness. Okay, so keep that picture in mind. Um, if you, when you ask God for the things that he's promised, ask with certainty, know that he's promised to give them to you. Okay. For the person, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So if you doubt that God will give you the things he's promised to give you, then you will not receive them. He is like a double-minded person, unstable in all his ways. Okay. So, um, to be double-minded, um, is like being a hypocrite, right? You say one thing and do another you think two contradictory things at the same time, right? You, um, you are not, you're not like a little child. You're not single-minded, right? Um, okay, then he goes on. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Okay, so now we've got, again, picture steadfastness. Before he was talking about it like a ship, a little boat on the sea being tossed to and fro. Now he's talking about a flower, right? A flower, this is what a rich man is like. Beautiful for a moment, but what happens? It's, got, it's, it's going to fade away, right? It's going to come to an end. And what brings it to an end? Verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, right? So there's something steadfast. The sun rises and sets every day, right? Brings its heat, and what does it do? It makes the grass grow, and then it withers it, okay? Makes the trees bud, and then it, they drop their leaves when, it, when, the sun, uh, when the sun goes south for the winter, right? So the sun now is this picture of steadfastness. The flowers are wilting. The sun is steadfast. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. You're not like a flower. You're not like, you're not going to fade. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So it's your, it comes from within you. God is unchanging. God doesn't tempt you to sin. It comes from within inside of you. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay? This is, the, this is then where our lesson for Sunday picks up. And this is what I want you to see. It's just so cool. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Okay? The word for deceived in Greek is uh, planao, which sounds like the word planet. In fact, it's the same word. So when the, when the ancient peoples looked up in the sky, they saw the sun and the moon, and they understood what was going on there. And then they saw the stars, which were always in the same place from year, from year to year, right? But the planets, what were they? They wandered about. They, couldn't, they, they knew they were different from the stars because they wandered about. Do not be like that, he says. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be planetary. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the father of lights, father of lights. So now think back to Genesis when God created the heavens and the earth. What did he do? He put that sun in the sky, the sun, which is this symbol of steadfastness. He put the sun in the sky, right? So as steadfast as the sun is, even more steadfast and reliable is the father of lights, the one who put them in the sky to govern the day and govern the night, okay? So we got this picture of this wilting flower down here, this wilting flower that when the sun shines on it, uh, that, that steadfast sun withers that flower. Now we've got God who is above the sun even in his steadfastness, in his reliability, okay? It's just, it's just this incredible image, I think. Uh, and it goes on. Um, Coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So you look at the sun and you say, well, yeah, it, it rises and sets every morning. But then you think about it and say, well, yeah, but as it rises, look at the shadows, they move, right? They move. And uh, over the course of the seasons, the sun rises here and then the sun rises over there, right? And uh, the days become shorter and longer. And even though it is predictable, it's unreliable from day to day, right? It changes. There's a shadow and variation of change in the sun. But God, the father of lights, none of that. He is steadfast, eternal, unchanging, unmovable. And that is why he is trustworthy. That is why when he promises something, uh, it, it, uh, it will happen. He gives it to you, which is why you can ask with certainty for the things that he's promised. So think about how earnestly we rely on the sun doing its thing from year after year. Les, you probably just planted corn this week, didn't you? Um, you, re you rely on the seasons, the steadfastness of the seasons to do these things, to provide life for us, sustenance for us. How much more reliable and steadfast is God, the father of lights, the one who put those lights there, to govern the day and govern the night. It is, uh, it's really, uh, it's just, when I, when I was, as I was studying it, I was just struck by all of the imagery in there and what a beautiful picture he paints for us of uh, why we should trust God, why we can trust God and ask him for every good thing in complete confidence uh, because he's promised to give it to us. Okay. I was talking pretty fast. They're trying to get it done. Go ahead, go ahead Dorothy. Uh, a quotation from Martin Luther, a, a pastor illustrated temptation you can't prevent the bird from flying over your head but you can keep him from building a nest in your hair that's right yeah and that gets back to what you were saying neil about uh, do you, you know do you stop sinning as a christian you know like can is that what a christian does you 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 turn away from your sin and you stop doing it well um you're still struggling against your flesh so the birds are still coming right the birds are still flying around your head but you can work against them right when they're there when they when they start to nest in your head you you get them away, right? You shoo them away. Yeah, that's what a Christian does. Yeah, good. Okay. Anything else before we go? Jason, I think you should give your uh, daughter a hug for the Bible class. Because uh, I've seen her visiting a couple times now. What did you say? Give your daughter a hug from the class. Oh, I will. <laughs> yeah, she wants to see Grandpa and Grandma on there, I guess. <laughs> okay, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, 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 and